0: When Spitting Image did its house music parody, House of Commons, Roy Hattersley's favourite band was described as rave favourites, Wet Wet Wet. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today for a second appearance is the guest from the most listened to edition of Looks and Familiar ever, 1,600 listens and counting, its political commentator, Mark Thompson. Mark, what are you up to? Where can we find it?
1: Well, I'm sort of doing what I was doing last time I was on, political commentary. We still do the House of Comments with uh, Emma Burnell and Nick Dennis as uh, kind of regular hosts and presenters, and we do one-off specials of those occasionally. And I I tend to pop up on local BBC radio every now and then, Radio Devon, my local station. I do a thing monthly and uh, I'm often on Radio Kent as well. For some reason, they like me down there. So uh, the sort of thing I do. I'm very honoured to hear that my one is the one that's had the most listens. That's very surprising.
0: Well, it was Dorno Porter's pick on her curated list on iTunes which was quite a surprise wow. to me at the time.
1: Okay. Well, maybe she's a fan of Night Shift as well.
0: Well, we're going to be starting off with something I don't imagine you've ever discussed on either Radio Devon or Radio Kent, but maybe you can correct me on that after we've heard the advert for
1: it. Well, the sun
0: went down on the Allegheny Hills. The air was split with a sound of wheels. It was Stanley
1: Stoke and his brother Irvine with a brand new fruit drink in name of Moonshine. Oh, yeah. well, no good critters hit the road, And up jumped one the told. He took a swig
2: and then he smiled. All the fruits in this here stuff is wild. Moonshine.
0: Okay, that's a song that I remember the last two lines off really well, particularly when I'm sitting exams. But Mark, what was Lippy's moonshine?
1: It was a drink. It, it came in a carton. It was made by the same people who made Umbongo, and I think it came out like around about 1980. Five, nineteen eighty-six. I think it was like maybe a couple of years after Umbongo, and it. I guess it probably fits the description of Libby's difficult second carton drink because <laughs> I I really liked it. I mean, I, I, Umbongo is the one everyone remembers. That wouldn't be suitable for this podcast because everyone will tell you, man, way down deep in the middle of the Congo, and everyone remembers that. Very few people seem to remember this one though. I have mentioned it a few times, and I just kind of get blank looks. I can't even really remember exactly what sort of flavour it was. It was kind of a fruit drink. It wasn't fizzy. It was flat because it was in a carton. The advert itself seemed to be very memorable the drink was called moonshine and obviously that's a play on the idea that it's kind of you know it's being illicit and it's being smuggled over the border and that sort of thing so i think they were like weasels brewing it in some basement that looked a bit like it had a still in it and then they were kind of loading it into the truck and then they were again over the county line i just remember it was it was quite a fun advert and it was on a lot at the time and i, I guess i'm i just assume that this drink would be around forever because You know, I was too young to realise that things like that come and go. And I had it a few times, I really liked it, and suddenly it wasn't there anymore. It was very disappointing. It's like, what happened to Moonshine? And then not only was it not there anymore, but it was like a few years later, what happened to Moonshine? And people were like, what? What are you even talking about?
0: Well, I don't remember specifically what was in the flavour, but I do know that whereas umbongo was kind of tropical fruits... This was supposedly—it's wrong to say forest fruits, but kind of homegrown ones. You I know, think it, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, idea was that it was—you know—it was, you know, was down to earth, normal, and brewed, as you say, by hillbilly weasels. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if it's because you know th- there isn't another thing called umbongo in the world. Yeah. They may drink it in the Congo, apparently, but you know <laughs> that—that is—that's is the only thing you associate with umbongo. But even at the time, I remember being really confused because in the was it looking that had the A team strip. Wherever it was, they broke up a moonshine still. I read BA say, any fool who drinks this will go blind And I didn't (laughs) know what moonshine actually was I was thinking, What what's the problem? But, but why are they so upset about libby's moonshine
1: <laughs> yeah i think that that might be something to do with it actually because obviously the phenomenon of trying to google something and not being able to find it because it's absolutely swamped with things that have similar names or use the exact same word that's a phenomenon that we're all very familiar with now but even in the non-digital age i guess there was a risk that if you name your thing something that's just a bit too generic or something that's much more famously known as something else like you know moonshine obviously illicit hooch that yeah yeah, it's just going to kind of fit in a category that it's going to be difficult for people to kind of separate it out and like you say when you come across it in a different context where people are actually talking about the other thing Yeah, I probably didn't know I mean, how old would I have been in about 86 I would have been about 12 so I probably wouldn't have really understood what moonshine the actual real moonshine was at that point so yeah Libby's being kind of clever clever with their marketing maybe they shot themselves in the foot well
0: apparently it was on sale until the early 90s but as you say even kind of with targeted googling there's very little out there. And I found very few references to it at all. And the most substantial information I found is in a good old-fashioned hardback book, which, for anyone who's not seen it, it's The Great British Talk Shop, written by Steve Berry and Phil Norman, who've both been guests on this show, which actually has some screen grabs from the advert, and a full history of what they call Wildberry Fruits with a Splash of the Dukes of Hazzard, which goes into the whole backstory about Sheriff Nathaniel Toad was chasing Stanley Stoutner's brother Irvine who raced over the county line with their cargo <laughs> of moonshine and also points out that it appears to have very closely ripped off Rupert and the Frog Chorus, which okay. hadn't occurred to me before that, but there's a lot of, maybe not harmonising frogs, but it's very definitely in that aesthetic, you know, with the big boogie Yeah. Guys. Now, you, now you're
1: you saying it, I can sort of see that. I, I went through a phase with my, my son is now four, he, when he was about two he really loved the Frog Chorus, we used to play that video a lot, you know what kids are like. So, so all that stuff that's in that book, I haven't got that book actually, but I'll add that to my list of books I need to get. I have got a few uh, a few kind of TV Cream-esque type books of, of that nature, but I, need, I probably need to get that one. And is that all canon, what you've just said, or is that just their interpretation of it?
0: Oh, no, that's absolutely canon. That's from the advert. <laughs> just as a side note, do you ever notice about the Frog Chorus, you know the bit at the start where Paul goes into that room and looks in that chest, takes out the Rupert annual and blows dust off it? In the yeah. background, there's a Rupert toy lying at a weird, crazy angle like he's murdered it. I hadn't noticed that, but I think you tweeted about this the other day. It's like the last shot of Cannibal Holocaust! <laughs> <laughs> the catch up with the director
1: was the Rupert the Bear video on the band list
0: it could have been because I think that wasn't the pre-cert era so that give by regards to Broad Street Paul was lucky that he evaded the attention of the DPP (laughs) are there any other sort of soft drinks from that era that you remember that sort of fallen off the radar because there's one that I never even tried I saw it in a supermarket once called Flight which had some singing cartoon elephants in the advert
1: I don't remember that one no
0: all I Remember, there's a line in the advert about how would you like to try it? Suction is the thing. Three jungle flavors make you feel all right. Choose your favourite colour. Take flight. Take flight. Googling that, there's nothing about that at all.
1: Yeah. Well, again, that's a that's a, a word that's going to be a difficult to kind of separate out from the millions of other uses and contexts. <laughs> I can't even it.
0: remember which spelling it was. I kept getting results
1: of pride every visit. It's interesting because when you're a kid, you don't realise how ephemeral things are, you know, how transient things are, they're, they're there and then they're gone, but well, you kind of think everything's permanent and actually when you look back a few years later, it's like, what happened to Texan bars? What happened to Pacers? What happened to these sweets and these chocolate bars that I used to like? And half of them just don't exist anymore. It's just funny the way as you get older, you, you start to realise that actually, you know, companies got a business or they do product testing, that they don't sell well and they just withdraw them. So, you know, nowadays I don't take anything for granted. If I find something that I like, I stock up on it.
0: I wouldn't advise going looking to stock up on moonshine. <laughs> no, because I think you're going to get yourself into trouble. <laughs> Indeed. Okay. Well, speaking of ephemeral things, your next choice is a series of books I remember being really, really big for maybe about six months to a year when they first appeared, and I think you're lucky to find any mention of them now. To the extent that there's no real clip good use for it, so have this instead. <laughs> Right, well, that was Blur singing No Monsters in Me because I didn't want to go down an obvious monster route song. Because there was nothing to go with your next choice mark, which is
1: It's amazing monsters. There were a series of books that stylistically, they sort of felt when you looked at them from the front cover, they looked a bit like Mr. Men books and I suspect that wasn't a coincidence. I suspect that was deliberate. I never actually owned a copy of any of these books, but my my friend, who was my best friend at the time when I was about eight or nine, was a guy called Stephen Aston and he had some of these books. And they were about all different creatures. I think the the chief protagonist of the the books was this amazing. He was supposed to be uh, like a like a professor of monsterology or something, and he he would curate information about these monsters. And sometimes he would appear in the stories. I think. And there's only really one I remember in a lot of detail. There were a few that that Stephen had. I think he had Webfoot and the Winky Bird. He had big nose and worm ball as well. But the one that I remember, and I actually remember in a lot of detail, is Green Eye. It was this kind of yellow bell-shaped monster with green eyes, and everything that Green Eye looked at turned green. And I just remember the details of the story. I particularly remember towards the end that he's walking in a park in London, and he sees the Prime Minister, and the Prime Minister turns green. And once the Prime Minister's been turned green, they decide that all they can really do is make sure that everyone turns green, because there's nothing they can do. They can't reverse the process. So in the end, Green Eye's job is just to sit. There and just look at everyone. I think any time a new baby is born, green. I look at the baby, and the baby turns green, and then everything. And as long as everyone's green, then it's fine. Also, a little quirk of these books is that they were clearly illustrated by a child. And I think when I was a kid, I thought they'd been written by a child as well. But it turns out when I looked into this a little while ago, that it's actually written by a man who was, I think, I can't remember his name, but he wrote. He was like quite a famous economist, or uh, used to work in the markets. He was quite famous in that area. Jim
0: Slater. Yeah,
1: that's it. Yes, and his ten-year-old son. Did the illustrations for the books. I think they were published in kind of 1979, 1980. So I think some was about 10 years old at the time. That was one of the things that really drew me to it because, you know, these pictures had been drawn using, I think, kind of felt-tip pens and had clearly been drawn by someone who was roughly my age. I could probably have drawn similar illustrations to the ones that were in the book. And I think that was a bit of a hook for me. But I don't know anyone who remembers these books now.
0: Well, I remember them because I actually had two of them. I had Wormball and The Great Gulper. And it's interesting that you brought up the thing about Green Eye turning the Prime Minister green, so therefore everyone had to be green, because there was quite a bit of, when I say satire, it wasn't loaded satire, it was just saying to kids, don't be fooled by these people, don't be reverent to them, never think people are necessarily your betters, because The Great Gulper, the whole plot of that, was that there's an oil slick, that there's a, I think maybe an international standoff over, and The Great Gulper just likes drinking liquids, and he drinks the whole oil slick, But there is a sequel where, I think it's called Seven for the Gulper, but inspired by the great Gulper, a Dr. Crank tries to monetize his skill by making a machine that can drink more liquid. And that then turned into another international incident, and the gulpers called in to rescue the excess of liquid that's generated by this (laughs) this stand-up. So it's quite unsophisticated stuff, but it's the kind of thing that I really really appreciated when I was a kid. Wormball was quite odd, really. I mean, in some ways, I think there was an environmental message in it, but it's basically, it's a worm who eats anything round, and whenever he eats it, he gets bigger and they don't know what to do about him. Eventually they blast him into space, and he eats the moon, (laughs) which wasn't explored in the other books as far as I know. I don't don't think Webfoot ran up against the missing moon. (laughs) That's the plot of Ogden's nut-gone-flake by the small faces, isn't it? But but there was a kind of thing about You are right about the illustrations. They are very well done for a child, but they're clearly by a child. But I think there was a craze for that around then because there were those... How old was the girl who did the garden gang? and I'm, I'm sure there were other things like that. It was more of a rarity really. I mean, these days, you know, you you just have to look on Facebook and you see drawings by everyone's child every two minutes.
1: But yes, to see them actually published in a in a book that was clearly available in the shops and had been, you know, published lots and lots of times, you know, lots of copies and, and also it ran for, I think there were about 16 of them. Um, so it's not like it was just a flash in the pan, just a couple of them. There were There were quite a few. I suppose when you're a child your world is so small, isn't it, that anything that kind of encroaches on your World, you think is massive, and you think that everyone must be into, but actually, you, you're just in a little series of silos, aren't you? And uh, people just remember different things. Well, it's completely
0: random what gets remembered as well. I mean, they do remember. Recently, there was a kind of a meme going around on Twitter where it was like, "What one thing about your vocation do people outside it not understand?" And my answer, which I didn't really put much thought into, and all I thought was more true it was, is that every cultural thing. No matter how forgotten has now had some degree of public profile at the time. And yeah, that even goes to, I mean, I was astonished recently that a 60s bank called Fortis Mentum, who didn't really do that well, as far as I thought... But looking for something else in an older show of TV times, I found a feature on Pop Sensation Forces Mentum, a three page feature about how they were the next big thing. With photos of them in there, Granny Takes a Trip finery. Sometimes you look at things and think, you know, you assume nobody was interested at the time. But there always were people interested. The only other ones I remember was Webfoot, who I think Webfoot might be the shapeshifter, but the webbed feet always gave it away. That was it. Yes, it was.
1: It was because on the front cover, he's a clock. But actually, yes. he, could be, he yeah. could be anything. Yes, that's yeah. right. But it was always the web. The web feet were the one thing that always stayed the same.
0: And there was the tricky troggle who, all I can remember is it was a troggle that was tricky. As I assume troggles aren't normally, by the sound of it. Yeah,
1: it should have just been done with it and called it the trouble with troggles.
0: Okay, well, if you've got trouble with troggles, I'm sure you could have written into your next choice. <laughs> that might be the worst link I've ever talked. <laughs> but it's not as bad as the programme. So, here's a clip of it.
2: I don't want to get up. God, you can stay with me. I'd love to, but a football team needs me more. But I'll make it worth your while. You're insatiable. Well, then think yourself lucky. <clears throat> you love football more
0: than me. You don't love football at all. Yeah,
2: but I fancy the pants off the players.
0: One player, I think you mean. Yes, darling. Right. Normally, if I say we're talking about a TV programme called Agony, you'll think of Maureen Lippmann and finely tuned satire and Sunday nights on ITV. But there was another Agony, and I think the word was quite apt. Mark, what was it? Well, before I start
1: describing what Agony was, I have to set it in the context of the television channel that it was on, <laughs> which was a short-lived television channel in the mid to late 90s called Live TV. And the I, in the word live, was a, an exclamation mark. That might give you some idea of the kind of quality. It was in the early days of kind of cable TV. I think the offices, the studios were in Canary Wharf, and it was run by Kelvin McKenzie. And I think Janet Street Porter was involved as well. I'm not sure I knew all of this at the time. It's sort of I've sort of gleaned this since but the quality of the programs was just shockingly bad very very low production values they had a they had a soap opera i think it was called canary wharf and it was just kind of from what i remember it was just people standing in the kind of you know, in the foyers of buildings in Canary Wharf arguing with each other. And they had various things on there, various things that some people probably will remember, things like topless darts and News Bunny and the bouncy weather with Rusty Goff bouncing on a trampoline pointing at a map of the country. But Agony was the thing that I remember most about live TV and there's barely anything about it. I did find a couple of clips on YouTube just when I was looking earlier, but it was a kind of live action problem page. But the way the problems were illustrated for the delectation of the viewer was in the form of a kind of live action version of a photo strip. So if you think back to say like just 17 magazines like that where they would have photo stories and um, you would have like, you know, word bubbles and thought bubbles coming from people, you know. And I think sometimes they use these in in Agony AMP pages. as well. I think the sun might have used this device as well. But Agony used it in live action. So you would see people acting out, usually very, very badly acting out and massively over the top and hammering it up, acting it out of whatever the problem was you'd see little thought bubbles pop up all the time I think that was why it caught my attention because you were able to see what the characters were thinking in reality and they were usually like terrible puns or like you know just really really clunking references to things it probably didn't cost very much I don't think anything even would have cost very much this clearly didn't cost very much at all and then they would throw back to the studio where you would get two agony aunts discussing the problem and giving their advice and I know in the early episodes it was two people I can't I couldn't even really remember they were I looked it up and on, it it turns out it was Kate Lloyd Richardson and Andrew Marshall, but I I didn't really remember them. I remember there were other people. The the people I remember was, it must have been like the second series of Agony. It was Miff Daniels. Yes. And Debbie Curry. I remember Debbie Curry because she was Edwina Curry's daughter and she actually looked and sounded quite like Edwina Curry. It was kind of obvious that she was her daughter. Miff Daniels was, I don't really know what his credentials were for being an Agony Hand. But he was just like some gruff geezer he'd be saying, Right, this is what we gotta do, right, now you got this problem, this is the solution, right? And he was just, it was like they sort of dragged in like brick top from off the streets and just sat him in and out. It, it was like something from like Armando Iannucci sketch show or something, just like, the world's most inappropriate agony on. And yet, I mean, okay, I hesitate to say they were being serious because I don't think anything on live TV was serious. But I think they were genuinely trying to engage people in what these problems were and genuinely trying to come up with solutions. I must have watched dozens of episodes of this thing. It was quite compelling. I would—I remember I would come over and oh, it's half past one, it's agony, I'm going to put live TV. TV on now. Well, that's quite shameful to admit because how old would I have been? I would have been in my early 20s. Surely I should have had better things to do than making this appointment viewing. Also, you would see actors in the in the scenes and every now and then you'd see one and you think, oh, I know that actor. So I remember, I can't remember what her name was or even what the character's name was, but the one who was Teggs' girlfriend in Grange Hill. Tegs, played by Sean Maguire. I can't remember what her name was. was Justine, was that her character? Yeah,
0: Rachel Victoria Roberts, that was. Okay.
1: She was in one of them because I remember thinking, she's quite a big actress. She's been on Grange Hill. What's she doing on this? And you would see, okay, you'd see people, you'd think, I know them from other things. Maybe you'd seen them on adverts or whatever. So I don't know if this was like a launch pad. Maybe some of the people who were in those sketches are now massively famous. I don't know. And also, you said about uh, most people would think when you say agony of the Maureen Lippman sitcom. But actually, I'd never heard of the Maureen Lippman sitcom. And when that came back. Was it in the late 90s or early 2000s? There was a revival of it. Yeah, Agony Again, that was called. That's right. And I remember reading about that and people saying, oh, uh, Agony's coming back. And my immediate thought was, oh, Agony's coming back. Oh, (laughs) my God. I think from live TV have they brought that is that going to be on the BBC now and it was because I I wasn't aware of the 1979 series until that point it was like ah okay no this is actually a proper thing with actual proper people right of course they wouldn't bring that absolute bollocks back what the hell was I thinking
0: well uh, yeah I remember being weirdly compelled by it again it was Miff Daniels because I don't know where he came from but he was weirdly watchable you know I say it was kind of a no nonsense approach it was you know he's got to man up and she's got to behave herself and blah blah but he actually seemed to be I don't imagine for a second these were real problems that people have sent in. I think they are all fabricated. Wasn't it all like the dog keeps coming in when we're having sex? Not sure. Did somebody have been that driven to desperation about that that they wrote into live TV. <laughs> but he seemed to actually think, you know, he seemed to actually feel like he was trying to help.
1: I'm not sure why they chose him, why they chose Biff Daniels for the second series. But I guess thinking back and thinking about the kind of the, the zeitgeist, for want of a better word, of the time, the whole loaded magazine HM. he very much fits that mold, doesn't he? Of a kind yes, of geek, a kind of bloke yeah. bloke who's giving, who's telling it like it is, and he likes the birds and he likes beer and here's a bit of advice.
0: Weirdly, apparently he now owns a very successful production company, so <laughs>
1: Well, there
0: you go. I don't think he learned his production lessons on acne. (laughs) Maybe he learned the precise opposite of what to do. But it's worth saying about Debbie Curry that it was a concerted attempt to try and launch her as a star around then. Because there were all kinds of weird things like she did an undercover Sting for the Cook report on sort of crooked pop management where she pretended she wanted to release a record and they, they sniffed out, you know, sort of, people offering dodgy deals and so on. She presents a few things. I remember as being okay, actually. I thought she was a perfectly reasonable presenter. And I wonder why she never really took off. It was probably because of the family connotations.
1: Maybe. I mean, I guess it's going to be very, very difficult to move out of the shadow of someone who is... As I hesitate to use the word, but iconic, I suppose, as Edwina Curry. I mean, everyone knows who Edwina Curry is, and when you're the child of someone
0: famous like that, I guess who it doesn't must be look quite dissimilar similar as well. That
1: well, one. yeah, there was that thing as well. If she did, if she didn't look much like her, maybe, but yeah, it was like it was almost like it was just a younger version of Edwina Curry sitting there, from what I remember.
0: Did you watch much else on live TV beyond one episode? <laughs> (laughs) There wasn't really anything I mean I mentioned About Canary Wharf But I just I just happened to
1: Dip in and out Of that very occasionally I did used to make An effort to watch Tiffany's Big City Tips For reasons that I Probably won't go into On a family podcast
0: Was that like me With Naked Mastermind With Susie Verrico Yeah it was probably For similar reasons To be honest Tim Very sadly Tiffany I
1: think her surname Was uh, Bannister Tiffany Bannister She died A couple of years ago I think she killed herself She'd suffered from Schizophrenia for many years I, I don't I can't remember quite How I found out about this I think I was watching Some clips show on Dave or Gold, and they mentioned about Tiffany's Big City Tips, and I just Googled her, and it turned out that, yeah, she uh, she developed schizophrenia, and yeah, mm-hmm. very, very sad end. Yeah, there wasn't really much else on that, that, on that channel that I tended to watch with any sort of regularity. It was just very, very disposable television, very much of its time, I think.
0: Well, I think to bring it onto a slightly happier note, I think the ultimate indication of how of its time it was is that, you know, sometimes in a comedy sketch show, you get a joke that's a topical reference at the time that loses all meaning later on, like the way, you know, Vic and Bob do Noel's Addicts. How many yeah. people remember that that was an actual programme that they were sending up? Very few. But on Fist of Fun, Lee and Herring, obviously, you know, they were sending up live TV when Ian News suddenly gained newsy, Ian Paisley. It was like, it's been mentioned here before, it was like a pantomime, Ian Paisley, it was like the news bunny. Would anyone who sees that now have any idea that It was was sending up a very recognisable... I can't say icon of television at the time, but a a recognisable thing on television. So I was listening to a podcast
1: recently... And they were explaining about how they managed to get that massive Ian Paisley, and it was because they'd already had it for some other show. They already had it ready-made.
0: That was this. That was the show with Phil Norman.
1: Ah, there we go. You see. the
0: second mention of the evening. There
1: you go. There you go. So I I listened to lots of different podcasts. I'd forgotten that that was on this one as well. I can totally believe that Richard Herring spent hours and hours sitting there watching live TV. knowing absolutely. Having having read his warming-up blog for many years and seeing seeing his stand-up stuff, that is exactly the sort of thing you would have just been lying on his sofa watching endlessly,
0: I'm sure. Hello, Richard, by the way. Okay, we're moving on to your next choice now, which, as TV goes, I would say slightly more cultured. Meet Erica Strange. Hey! Erica. Her life hasn't exactly gone as planned. Do you know that thing about people that peak in high school?
1: That might be me. What are you doing?
0: Now, with a little help, she's going back. Do you want to fix your problems or not? Yes! To turn her life around.
2: You sent me back in time. Indeed. Wait, wait, wait! We have a
0: lot of work to do, you and me. Being Erica. Don't miss the series premiere tonight at 9 on CBC. Right, well, that's the trailer for a programme that I pretty much forgotten existed up until now. Mark, what was Being Erica?
1: Well, it was a show that I think it did air in the UK. It was a Canadian series starring, I think her name was Erin Carpluck, and it was about a woman who, I think she ends up in hospital in the, in the pilot episode. And she ends up somehow ending up in in the office of uh, a man who I think she initially thinks is a doctor or psychiatrist, but it turns out is someone who can help her travel back in time to deal with issues, to kind of exercise issues from her past. But the way she does it is by actually going back into the past. It was like a fascinating premise. I always love decent sci-fi premises for for programmes like this. And it was very well done. I remember she was very, very good. I've been surprised in the years since, because this, I, I must have watched, this in kind of two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten. I'm not even sure how I came across. I think I read an article in either the Independent or the Guardian that, that referenced it, and I think they were saying, you know, we very much hope he's going to come over to this country. And then I, I got hold of the episodes and watched it myself. And it was one of those programs. My wife got into watching it with me as well, actually. Quite often when I find quirky stuff like this, my wife's not interested, but she really got into this because it's not just kind of sci-fi. It was also it was dealing with issues from her present by going into her past, and it was very cleverly done. I think the chap who played the Doctor as well was very good, and there was a whole thing of like a storyline that was running through the present but then they keep going back to the past and at some point they introduced a chap I think his character name was Kai who was a time traveller from at that point in the future I think he was from 2018 or 2019 and he was a he was a very famous pop star in his reality but he was travelling back in time and he kept crossing over his timelines with Erica and I think at first she didn't realise he was also a time traveller but and yeah and there was her family was kind of on the scene as well her mother was an actress who I definitely recognised from other things but most of the people in Being Erica or I didn't recognise from anything. And what I find most surprising, the reason I nominated it for this, is because I, maybe because either it didn't air here or if it did, it just aired on a minor channel and there wasn't much publicity about it. I don't really know anyone apart from my wife who remembers this. Now, I know quite a lot of people who watch quite a lot of television and whenever I've mentioned it, I just get blank looks like people, this, this just never landed here for some reason.
0: Well, I saw it, I think, once or twice because it was on E4, I think uh, in the small hours. It really was just something they put on to fill an otherwise awkward gap, presumably by and the live feed from Big Brother are broken down or something, <laughs> but I remember finding quite enjoyable, but I always had the sense that they'd maybe set out to make it a bit more racy, a bit more adult in a sort of Kelly Monteith sense than it became, you know, that at some point somebody had said, stop it, be more family friendly, and it kind of had that weird atmosphere of sort of wanting to be a bit daring, but never quite going there. I don't know if I'm remembering that correctly.
1: Yeah, maybe. I mean, one thing that did happen with it, which I, I, I was fine with, and I, I just kind of went with it, but it might have been off point to some people, is it did become a little bit soap opera-y, with the the storyline the contemporary storyline that was kind of running alongside the going back in time stuff you know it was like she lost her job but then she set up a publishing company with her friend and then but actually the person she'd set the publishing company up with was her old boss who'd initially fired her and, and then there was that stuff going on and then there was the whole kind of you know boyfriend thing and I think she initially had a boyfriend but then there was a question about was it going to happen with Kai and, and I think that might have been a bit off-putting to some people because I, what I was really in it for was the time traveling stuff and it was it was great to see that you know she She'd be going back to when she was a child and when she was a younger adult. I think they were pretty good at kind of setting the scene for those things. She was from a Jewish background as well, so there was there were quite a lot of hooks like that, you know, for like the I don't know what the female equivalent of a bar mitzvah is, but whatever that, you know, she went back to her her one of those, and there was just lots of quirky stuff in there that kind of landed with me. I mean, I think it probably did run its course because by the final series they were doing like group therapy, and there were several people who could go back in time, and I think they were running out of ideas by then. I think it was getting a little bit starting to repeat itself. So I think after four seasons it was probably enough i guess i expected to see Erin in carpluck if that was her name sorry if i got that pronunciation wrong i expected to see her in more stuff because she was very impressive and yeah, i don't think i've ever seen her
0: in anything i can't say i've seen her in much else really i must admit i didn't look her up but i did look up being erica on wikipedia and you know we think it's forgotten but that wikipedia page goes on forever. Ever. Yeah, Alan Bennett's on the margin has four lines on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> and this just never stops. It's just on and on and on. Every character has about 800 words on them. I just baffled.
1: If you looked at the edit history to see if this is just one person who's a massive Being Erica fan who's kind of contributed 90% of the content of that page. What that might also speak to is maybe it was really big in Canada and just in, in this country just not, not so much.
0: But there were quite a few shows that toyed with the thing of going back in time to sort things out. Not just things like Heroes and so on, but there was Crime Traveller, about which we should say no more. There was Early Edition, <laughs> which is one nobody remembers, where he always had the next day's newspaper.
1: I remember Early Edition. You see, these programmes you're, you're mentioning here, you don't want to talk about Crime Traveller. I, I get why, because I, I nominated The Last Train last time I was on. And I think you mentioned Crime Traveller in passing when I mentioned that as well, because you were talking about it was in the context of these shows, you know, that were kind of filling in for Doctor Who when it was on its long hiatus. I did like Crime Travel at the time although I watched it again a while later. <laughs> My God, it's awful. Early edition, I realised that that had that Chuck Fisher Stevens. He was like the kind of comedy character in that, wasn't he? I think that just fizzled out, didn't it? I think it had about three seasons and then went. But these programmes, maybe they boxed themselves in with their premises. Like you say, Quantum Leap, he could pretty much go anywhere. The only limits were within his own lifetime. Apart from that, he could be back to the 60s. He could, you know, he could be going to famous historical events. But I suppose with being Erica, it's within her own lifetime, but it has to be within her own life- lived experience. And there's only so many times you can go back in some one's life and for there to be interesting things that were going on before it starts to become a little bit Brookside with like, you know, the parade being exploded at the same time as there's, uh, you know, there's like a cult in the close and it just starts to become... Totally unbelievable,
0: isn't it? But it's interesting to ponder on when they stopped showing American or in this case Canadian imports at sensible times on terrestrial TV. Because you know, you think about things like things were actually quite popular, like Arrested Development was on at stupid o'clock in the morning. I Mm. think on a Sunday night. Pushing daisies, which ITV tried to push as if it was, you know, another hit show. Friday nights about ten thirty? I think mm-hmm. it was a really weird slot. You had things like Lost and Heroes were on minority channels, House was only ever on Channel 5, wasn't it? There you were know, all these things that could have been really, really popular, and they just weren't interested in, and they never quite understood when that started happening, or why, really.
1: It's a good point, actually. You just don't get the big American imports being shown on the major channels anymore. they If, they, if they're shown at all, they're shown on 5 USA or E4, or, or very late at night, maybe, on Channel 4 or something. There's just no kind of appointment television that's generated in other countries. I mean, you know, I'm watching The Walking Dead at the moment, for example, and I'm just watching it on Netflix, and I guess that's the way it's going now, isn't it? I mean, it's just on-demand stuff now. You know, if you want to watch the big US show, you don't wait for it to be shown on a terrestrial channel. You just go and find it yourself on whatever service it's on.
0: But it wasn't always big appointment TV, as anyone who remembers all 84 million episodes of Empty Nest being shown in prime time will attest. I think it was just there was a novelty to foreign TV, only really American TV. I suppose, but you know, the I suppose wore off. Yeah, it wasn't as exciting after a certain point. I suppose. Yeah.
1: I mean, maybe like Australian and Canadian television as well, you know, you would, it's English language television, isn't it? Although the whole Scandi phenomenon that started a few years ago the Scandi crime dramas.
0: Well, that's interesting. Yeah, that's kind of a reversal of it, isn't it?
1: Yeah, interesting.
0: Okay, well, if we want someone to pinpoint exactly when that did start happening, I think the stars of your next choice could possibly help us. Cambodia was definitely a high point. The beginning
1: of the first verse goes, well, he was Thailand-based, which is one of the greatest opening lines in pop.
2: Well, he-
0: He used to fly weekends. It was the easy life. Right, well, that there was a clip of Andrew Collins remembering something, because there's absolutely nothing good use here, because it's a Collins that nobody remembers. <laughs> Mark, who were Hawkeye Collins and Amy Adams? I've got no idea.
1: This was a series of books that were published in the early 1980s. And it was about two characters who lived in uh, some town, some fictional town in some US state. And they uh, solved crimes. And they were very accessible for the kind of age I was at the time, would have been about eight or nine. There were several different mysteries per book. There was something at the start of the books that was like a kind of newspaper thing that, like, you know, they were in the local newspaper having, like, solved crimes or something. And that... that hooked me in immediately because it, you know it, it would, that was a bit unusual to see and there was a map of the town and that was sometimes instrumental in trying to help you solve the case because you, you would read the the mysteries And then you would turn to the back of the book in order to see the solution, but you had to try and solve the mysteries yourself. And uh, this was, this was meat and drink to me at the age I was. It was like, Oh, I'm going to be my own detective here. And I remember I would go down to the library. I think I, I think it was even one of those times when I went to the library and I maybe got a couple of them. And then I went up to the woman behind the counter and said, can you order more of these in for me, please? Which was was a little trick that my mum had told me that you, you were able to do. So, um, I think I managed to get through most of these books. I think there were at least 10 of them. There's several mysteries. I think the reason they stuck in my mind the most, though, is because of the way that the solutions were presented at the back of the book. They were in mirror writing. And so the idea was, I guess, that if you flicked to the back of the book by accident or even deliberately, you wouldn't be able to read the solution unless you proactively stood up and held the book in front of a mirror so you could actually read the solutions. What this actually led me to do after the first few, when I got a bit tired of having to stand up and go and stand in front of a mirror, is I just trained myself to be able to read mirror writing so that I could... (laughs) (laughs) read the silly that's the kind of kid I was Tim I memorized pi to 20 decimal places I memorized the alphabet backwards I memorized the alphabet in the order on a keyboard and I taught myself mirror writing and yeah that meant that then I didn't have to get up and go and stand and look in a mirror I could just read it (laughs) sitting down in a chair Uh, but I thought I thought that was that was a really quirky thing and again it was a hook for exactly the sort of child that I was at the time of like oh I've got a I've got a special way that I can read books that even my mum and dad couldn't do this they hadn't trained themselves to read mirror (laughs) because frankly they had better things to do bringing up three kids they very much stuck in my mind and I don't know anyone who remembers them I, every time I've mentioned these I just get complete blanks because I think this was very much just my thing it's not like I borrowed them off friends or anything like that I just noticed them in the library and I went and borrowed them I, I don't know anyone else even when I was that age who'd read them I don't think I even, don't think even my brothers read them
0: well I'm not too surprised to hear that because around that time I looked into it they were published I think roughly 83 to 85 I'm yeah. written by an M Masters which is apparently a pen name for loads of different authors but around that time if you went to the children's book section WH Smith you could not move for sort of mystery puzzle books starting with obviously there were the fighting fantasy ones you know those games workshop mm. things like the Warlock of Top Mountain Scorpion Swamp and all that Freeway Fighter was my favourite one of those there was the Choose Your Own Adventure series which I think was the next most popular which a bit more kind of plucky child Red Hand Gang style adventures and yeah. you didn't need dice for them which made them a bit easier and there were less goblins and things beyond that, there were so many copyists. I remember I had a famous five one that had a map in it. It was like a kind of a disassembled famous five novel where you had to solve the mysteries. There was a, a series of Doctor Who ones I think Pip and Jane Baker wrote. names that would be striking terror into a lot of Doctor Who fans listening It was a stainless steel rat one. Four kids were actually written by Harry Harrison. It, it was endless. There were hundreds and hundreds of copyists, so I'm not surprised that Hawkeye and Amy got sort of lost in that deluge really
1: yeah and maybe maybe that's why there's just very little about it because it was just it was one of those things that was just very much happening at the time i mean you mentioned about the choose your own adventure books i mean i was obsessed with choose your own adventure books again i used to get them from the library and i remember the first i think the first one i got i think it was called the third planet from a Malta, which i think like the third or fourth in the series of those books but and, and i used to get them from the library and then once my mum and dad twigged that we really because that was something that i shared with my brothers and other people who, who i knew uh Started buying them for Christmas and stuff. And we ended up with loads of them. And I, I would be sitting there and I. <laughs> I, I always hated it when I ended up dying so I would like have my fingers hold it in the pages from like maybe the last four or five decision points so that if something went wrong and I ended up like my character got killed I'd be like right okay let's go let's wind back to the last the last saved point right okay oh actually no because that from this point if you go forward whichever way you go you're going to die right I want a good ending so I'm going to go back three spaces <laughs> so you probably tell I'm a I'm a software developer by day can't you with that kind of mindset it's sort of like probably predestined I spent many many hours reading those sorts of things but the, the whole. Kai and Amy books, I think it was because you solved the mysteries. You know, it wasn't just one of these things where it's like a mystery and then you know you get the answer at the end. It's like, no, 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 we've given you all the information. Here's a map, you solve what's happened, and that, that really appealed to me.
0: Well, I was going to say you have brought me round to something I was going to mention, which was the choose your own adventure books. I mean, it was fighting fantasy that there was a lot of trouble about in the news, and Mary Whitehouse wasn't happy about the mysticism in them and so on, but choose your own adventure were quite gruesome because your character did die in them, often in quite a pleasure. I, I remember one of my sisters being quite upset by... She had one where you were a kid investigating forging, and there was one ending where the forgers caught you and threw you into a, a vat of boiling ink. Yeah. You know, that wasn't, wasn't really very nice, but having a look at the mystery titles in the Hawkeye Collins and Amy Adams books, I don't think they could have been quite so gruesome, because I can see they included The Case of Lucy's Lost Lemonade, The Case of the Bashed Boss... <laughs> The case of the chocolate snatcher and my favourite, the case of Loon Lake monster. (laughs) <laughs> now, I do not imagine there was much sort of gore and horror in them, really. I mean,
1: I'm afraid I can't remember any of the specific mysteries, but I, I do remember it was it was very much kind of, you know, age-appropriate. There was nothing that would have been inappropriate for an eight- or nine-year-old. I was never traumatised by any of them. The Choose Your Own Adventure ending that I remember the most, and I found the most horrific, is one that actually was just probably a silly little quirky thing that the author knocked out in two minutes and never thought about it again. It was one where, I can't remember what story it was, but whatever came character you've got I think you somehow end up getting a bunch of wishes and you end up wishing that everything tastes like pizza and then you start eating stuff it's like oh yeah this pizza this is lovely and you eat something else it's pizza but actually within a few hours you're a bit tired of it because everything tastes like pizza and then you go home and mum says guess what's for dinner pizza and like that was the end it's like what if like is that forever <laughs> like yeah, I the see no major life.
0: flaws with this situation. Yeah, it's like for the rest of your life, everything's going to taste like pizza. That's Good. that's horrific. I don't know. I can think of some situations where it would add a you know, dash of interest.
1: <laughs> Possibly. I think it's just, it's endings like that where things are kind of casting stone forever that always freak me out, though. It's like in, you mentioned Crime Traveller earlier on, something in the first episode where it's, I think it's called Jeff Slade in the Loop of Infinity. And it's just the fact that I think someone ends up getting trapped and they're in just the same thing, like, forever, like, 30, the same thirty second loop forever and ever and it's like stuff like that that you know you, you're stuck in something forever that that always freaked me out but there was nothing like that in Hawkeye and Amy I'm pretty sure it was all pretty wholesome fun
0: I was going to say the last time you robbed, one of your choices was the kind of computer sleuth kids adventure programme WizKids yeah did you want to be a sort of wholesome clean cut detective <laughs> or did you just like watching and reading about them I
1: think we, we yeah me and my brothers sort of tried to set up a detective agency <laughs> we did <laughs> We were out on our bikes, a bit like the Whiz Kids, and we would be out. But you know, when you live in like Runcorn and you know on kind of a new estate, there aren't really that many mysteries to solve. So you know, you're kind of like you're a bit still there. Like, maybe someone's lost a dog or something. Did we go? I think we went around knocking on doors asking if there were any mysteries anyone need, <laughs> needed to solve. But um, I, don't, I don't think our I don't think our services were really required, to be honest.
0: Well, I've got a story that can actually beat that. I'm not sure if I've ever told this in public before, but we moved house when I. Th- I think I was five or No, I must have been six. But it was quite an old house that belonged to an old couple before we moved in. And I don't know what the backstory behind it was. But there was a basement full of old junk, including a ram's skull, which I assume that, you know, had just been found out rambling one day. And me and one of my sisters, we just couldn't pass it off as something that was just there without explanation. And there was a patch of grass in the garden that was darker than the rest of the garden. And for some reason, we got it into our heads. It's because we, you know, in our heads, it was the sheep. Not a rat. Hmm. It was a sheep that had been murdered because it knew too much. <laughs> it, it was the height of the Cold War, and I was I was quite a news literate child. I don't say that was a good thing. It was a very, very bad thing. But I became convinced this poor sheep had known too much about the Cold War. The Russians had <laughs> had it killed. I think it was just after the thing with Georgi Markov being stabbed with the poison-tipped umbrella, which I was grotesquely compelled by as a very young child. Mm. And we thought... The rest of this sheep was buried in the garden, and we tried to convince my father that he should do something about it. Like, like, like what? <laughs> well, he, just, he just thought it was hilarious, but he, <laughs> I think he kind of played along. Well, I remember us trying to dig, to see if we can find it. <laughs> and later, when I got older, we realised it was just because the shadow of the house fell on that bit of the grass.
1: <laughs> there you go, mystery solved. You don't even need mirror
0: writing to solve that one. Okay, well I'm not really sure how I can get from there, and it's my own fault, into your last choice. So here's a clip of it, and we'll talk about it afterwards.
1: Tell me more about yourself. Um, what's your idea of happiness?
2: My idea of happiness? Yeah. Well, I know it's a cliché, but well, I've always wanted to be a homekeeper.
1: Oh, marriage, kids,
2: that sort of thing. Yeah, me too. No, not really. You see, I think it's unfair on men to expect them to marry you. Oh? Yeah, men have an innate desire to spread their seed and they should be allowed to go ahead and do it. Really? <laughs> yeah, I see myself looking after my man's every needs. So, I mean, let's face it, when he comes home late from the pub or work or his mistress's bed, he's going to need some tender loving care. Right. And he's going to have enough on his plate without having to deal with housework, cooking, DIY, shopping, <laughs> especially shopping. No, I'd send him straight down the pub with his mates. At least then I wouldn't feel so guilty. Do you think that's terribly selfish of me?
1: No, 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 no.
2: I would insist on one thing, though.
1: Oh, what's that?
2: That I'd be allowed to keep a wardrobe full of sexy underwear and kinky gear because, well, I think it's so important to keep a sex-side relationship exciting but above all experimental.
1: Sounds quite reasonable to me.
2: I do to get married and have kids.
1: I did want to get married, yeah, but but I'm coming round to your way of thinking. I think that's what relationships are all about, uh, compromise.
2: Oh, no, I think compromising should be done mainly by women, but, well, if a man wants to compromise, and that's his decision. (laughs) I must say, I have never met anyone like you before. You seem like a pretty level-headed sort of girl to me oh yes i've seen the light ever since the blue dwarf told me <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: oh, on my shoulder. okay that was amanda holden and Sanjeev bashkar in a show that i remember only too well we know where you live mark Why have you picked this?
1: Well, I've picked it because I didn't know this at the time because I watched it on the Paramount Comedy Channel in about 98, 99. But it was apparently one of Channel 5's launch shows. So it was a sketch show and it starred Simon Pegg, Sanjeev Bhaskar, Fiona Allen, Ella Kenyon, Amanda Holden and Jeremy Folds as a kind of sextet of kind of comedy performers. And it was a bunch of sketches. And they would usually be two-handed or three-handed. And you know, they would just kind of mix and match and pick different people to be in the sketches. The reason it stuck in my mind is it was quite good. I mean, sketch shows can be quite hit and miss, but it it was, it was quite good. Also, the end credits had a a really interesting, really interesting way they did the end credits. They had who I assume was the entire crew that made the show and they were all standing on a black background wearing black t-shirts with their names written. And then they turned around and the, the job that they had whatever assistant producer key grip whatever it was was written on the back and that was the closing credits they were literally standing there there was some kind of music running for a few seconds and they just stood there and then they turned around and then that was it plus i assume because i assumed they were the actual people you actually got to see the people who did those jobs and you don't normally get to see those people so it stuck in my mind for that reason i think one of the reasons why this is forgotten is because several of the cast members went on to be much more famous in other sketch shows so Simon Pegg went on, obviously, I mean, Simon Pegg is a huge international star now, but he very quickly after that went on to star in Big Train, which was a much more popular sketch show. I mean, I remember like Chris Evans, Chris Moyles talking about that. That one really cut through. Sanjeev Bascott obviously, was in Goodness Gracious Me, which is like a huge cultural touch point for the late 90s now and for kind of, you know, Asian comedy. Fiona Allen went on to star in Smack the Pony a few years later on Channel 4. Um, and obviously, Amanda Holden went on to be massively famous in a completely different context. Of the other two, Jeremy Folds, I've got no idea what happened to him. I don't know. I haven't even really looked it up, to be honest. I think he was Derek Fold's son. So Derek Fold's of Yes Minister and Heartbeat fame. He certainly looked a bit like him. Ella Kenyon has gone on to do lots of different things over the years, but there's, a, there's an interesting little point with, with Ella, which is that I met her in a radio studio about seven or eight years ago. It was, so it was one of, I used to do quite a lot of the Friday and Saturday night news review and preview things that Ian Collins used to do on LBC, which is like an hour long thing. And it would be, they'd normally get like a, like a political person and then they get like a comedy person and they you would just talk about like the six biggest news stories either of the previous week it was a Friday night or the next week it's a Saturday night and I sat down I had usually you got maybe 10 minutes to have a chat with whoever was going to be on with you beforehand but actually Ella was already in the studio when I got there and I was waiting to go on so the first time I met her was when we were on air I literally sat down and we went straight into it. The presenter Ian Collins said so Ella what would people know you from then and she kind of mentioned a couple of things she'd been I think she'd been in Green Green Grass which was a spin-off of Only Fools and She'd been in a couple of other things. I think she mentioned Swashbuckle as well on CBBS, which she'd been in too. And then he said, Mark. and Mark, so he came over to me and said, so Mark, uh, you know, and you introduced me. And I said, I remember Ella from late 90s sketch show, We Know Where You Live. And she gasped from across the other side of the table. Because <laughs> I just think even to her, like, but hardly anyone ever mentions it to her. She couldn't believe that I could remember it, and she actually gave me some very interesting inside gossip about how the thing was put together in the first place. She said that it was Simon Pegg and his agent, and it was their idea initially, and they were the kind of driving force behind it. And she said that they kind of got the rest of the cast, but they weren't even going to be paid equity minimum, apparently. Apparently all their agents kind of got to say, come on, guys. You know, you've got to be paid at least equity minimum. And apparently Simon Pegg was going to be paid twice as much as them. And she said at this point, I remember her saying, well, you know, he did bring twice the funny. And I remember thinking... I don't... I'm not sure about that because I don't remember Simon Pegg being particularly standing out. Obviously, like, he is a very, very funny and clever guy and, you know, the force behind the Cornetto trilogy or one of the forces behind it and so on. He's gone on to major things since. But that sketch and I have watched episodes of it since. I don't think he particularly stood out. I thought Fiona Allen was brilliant in it. I thought Ella Kenyon herself was very, very good. I'm not sure he stood out massively. So the idea that he was going to be paid twice as much as the rest of them, I'm not quite sure how that got over. It all got resolved. I think they did end up... Completely into some agreement but I was quite surprised I think she was kind of implying it was Peg's agent rather than Peg himself that was kind of pushing that agenda but yeah I think it's a shame that this has been lost to time really and that basically hardly anyone remembers it I, I think one of the ways in which I found it difficult to find out information about this when I started looking for it a few years ago is that there was some kind of live show Called We Know Where You Live, some live comedy show.
0: Right. I n- I will come back to this in a minute. Just say your take on it because I know exactly what happened there.
1: Okay. So I don't really know much about that because I didn't. But it was some kind of thing, maybe a bit like the secret policeman's ball, that sort of thing, like a one-off comedy benefit gig or something. And so whenever I googled We Know Where You Live comedy, that, that would come up, and and I knew it wasn't that. And uh, since last year, there's some I, I can't even remember who the artist was now, but there's some song called We Know Where You Fucking Live, and if you, That's <laughs> it. I that saw into, that earlier. Yeah. If you put that into Google now, it's completely swamped with that. So it's difficult to find out information about it. Yeah, go on then. What, what's, your, what's your knowledge about this thing that's been stymieing my chances of finding out about it?
0: Well, the whole story is I remember it quite clearly because, you know, when Channel 5 first launched, A, it was a new channel, and B, they really did try, but not try hard enough, as far as I'm concerned, to corner the market in edgy late-night comedy. Mm. They just could never quite get it right. They had that. They had Bring Me, the had The Light Entertainment. They had the Jack Doherty show, which didn't really work, but Graeme Norton stood in for him, I think, for two weeks, and that then became what is still the Graeme Norton show to this day. There was the People vs. Jerry Sadovitz, which was compulsive viewing, but maybe not for the reasons they wanted it to be. I think Jim Tavare had a sketch show that I like him, but he couldn't really carry a full show on his own. They just could never quite get it right. And We Know Where You Live was kind of part of that. It was good, but it wasn't It wasn't pointless. TV. But the interesting thing was, I mean, there were 12 episodes of it. That's astonishing. And I think they repeated them in either 98 or 99. And then, after Chris Morris did Jam and Jam, the remix version, they did a quote remix of We Know Where You Live, which was shown in 2000, which briefly was available on DVD, which I think I've actually got still in cellophane, actually. I might have to get around to watching that. It was a reworked version, slightly jazzed up of the original. And then in 2001, Channel 5 showed that year's Amnesty live show, which is what you're thinking of, which a couple of them were in, so they branded it We Know Where You Live Live. Ah, so
1: it was related to But I remember it, thinking
0: then. at that point, this is never going to take off. You've tried four times now, and they're all doing different things. Leave it be! Well,
1: by 2001, the ship had very much sailed. Yes. Peg was doing yes. other stuff. Bascar was doing stuff. Fiona yeah. Allen would smack I mean, the pony. On
0: the DVD about that, Dom Jolly is right at the front of it. So. <laughs>
1: Okay, so I see. I didn't realize that 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 benefit gig thing was linked to it. So it it's sort linked, of makes sense, but it's sense not really
0: stuff. part of the expanded universe. Uh, no, saying. it's tangential.
1: It's, 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 but they were obviously yeah still trying to kind of flog. or by that point, must have been pretty clear as a dead horse. I mean, in in terms of Simon Pegg, I definitely didn't watch the initial broadcast of that. I, I watched it on the Paramount Comedy Channel in probably ninety nine, maybe even two thousand. Because I remember at that point, I knew who Simon Pegg was then personally because I remembered him from the Buttercup Syrup advert. <laughs> <laughs> from 1995 but genuinely because I, I liked that advert and I could see that he, he was quite a good company for whoever this guy was but then I went to see Steve Coogan in 1998 on The Man Who Thinks He Is It tour and he was supported by Simon Pegg oh he was yes I went
0: to see that i have forgotten about that
1: Julian Davis and Simon Pegg both supported him and I remember thinking Simon Pegg was really good in that and and so I, I sort of knew who Pegg was at that point but it was it was probably the third thing I'd ever seen him in I think the first thing would have been the ad but the second thing would have been him live and then it was this. So this was kind of the first proper thing I'd seen him in on television and then pretty quickly afterwards, space came along and then, and then hippies and it all just kind of went from there and obviously like I say he's a, he's a huge star now
0: well it is listed it just gets in by the skin of its teeth into the first edition of Mark Lewison's radio times guide to TV comedy which is always my bible it describes it as a fast paced sketch show performed by an energetic troupe of young talents the sketches have no overall theme but were modernistic in nature spoofing MTV presenters and utilising such contemporary devices as security camera footage mobile phones hidden miniaturised cameras and the like is that how you remember it? We- Um, Not really,
1: no. I know in the opening credits, they were all kind of going through a shop and then they ended up in the toilet at the back of the shop and there was like a security camera that was kind of filming them from above and they all kind of looked up and then it's just kind of captioned We Know Where You Live. I don't remember any of the sketches being of that nature. They were just, I think they could have just been in any sketch show. I think, I'm not sure you could really tell that much difference between the sort of sketches they're in that and say something like Big Train. Probably less surreal, to be fair. I do remember there were some good sketches in We Know Where You Live. I remember one in particular, and i think it did rely on peg's ability to i'm not even sure how you describe it really to kind of be talking about something that's supposed to be serious but actually kind of pulling weird facial expressions. He was a doctor and he's coming out and he's talking to Ella Kenyon and probably Jeremy Folds, playing the parents of the girl who's just died on the operating table. But as he's describing what happened during the operation, he starts talking just very matter of fact. He mentions that of course they summoned up the devil because, you know, and it, and he's like, you know, things like that. and actually things have gone bad and now she's the high priestess of all of hell. And, uh, you know, Ella Kenyon says, well, I'm sure you did everything you could, Doctor. As I'm relating that now, I'm not relating it as well as it comes across. And it's not so much the content of the sketch it's more pegs performance knowing what he's like now you can sort of see that actually he he did carry some stuff and maybe that does show the benefit of having someone who's got a lot of talent working with material that maybe will only stretch so far
0: yeah i think a lot was changed by the fast show it became less about trying to make a funny show with sketch shows after that trying to make a funny show that became successful because it was funny it's trying to market a hit from the outset way things were pushed i mean i remember you know some were successful like Big Train Smack the Pony and some weren't like our old mate Ben Baker reminded me the day about Bruiser do you remember that? Uh... Did that star David Mitchell? David Mitchell, Robert Webb, Ricky Gervais and Martin Freeman, amongst others. Well, it's interesting given the cast that has disappeared, I'd say. Yeah. OK, well, I believe you've got an extra thing to mention, staying on the subject of possibly obscure TV, which I don't know what this is. Do you want to tell me what the extra you've asked to tag on to the end is?
1: Yeah, so I was talking to my wife about coming on this uh, this show last night, and she, she's mentioned this to me before, apparently, although I don't really remember her mentioning it, but she's reminded me for that she did and it's a half remembered thing she reckons from about 40 or so years ago so i thought i might put it to you she says it's i made some notes here it's a bbc kids program brackets probably like a it thing kids jury so they're like kids as a jury kind of making decisions about stuff dressed in orange overalls a moving cardboard cutouts of robots and one robot had committed a crime and the kids had to work out based on pieces of evidence which robot did it From the late 70s or early 80s, she's a bit unclear about that, really. It might only have been one series. She liked it, but she never saw it again after the first series. And was a kind of weird sense to proceedings. And she thinks in one episode a robot had been killed, in quotes, and that there was blood coming out of it, or blood in quotes. She's wondering if she misremembered that bit, though. So
0: Well, I wouldn't be surprised if that actually happened because I know only too well what that is. That was Captain Zepp's space detective, which uh, I very rarely shut up about, if I'm honest with you. Yeah, now I've heard you talk about that
1: before. But I, I never made the connection that that's what that was. Maybe, I don't I don't know why I didn't make the connection. And I think I, I vaguely remember having watched that myself when I was a kid, but I don't remember the orange jumpsuits thing rings a vague bell. Now you that's, mention
0: it. It is definitely that. And I think the theme song for that is going to be a great thing to play kids on. So, Mark, <laughs> oh, thank you for giving me the excuse to play that. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Captain Zep, Captain Zep. Super Space! save day Can't help thinking about me by like Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles giving a new twist, looking at how, and why, I ended up on the BBC News channel with a big caption saying, Clangers expert. More details, timworthington.org